You're going to love this. Just love it. Yes. You will. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and of course coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure uh, that we call the Bradcast. Glad you could join us. Big show coming up, including uh, the final investigation on the wife-beating U.S. District Court judge who was arrested a year ago August in an Atlanta hotel room after his wife called 911. That new investigation is is now in, at least it's been sent to Congress. Uh, This concerns Alabama federal judge Mark F. Fuller. He is the dirty judge, frankly, who sent Democratic Alabama Governor Don Siegelman to federal prison for something that had never been a crime before the Karl Rove-linked cabal in Alabama, which included Judge Fuller. Uh, Something that had never been a crime until Don Siegelman was charged for it. The investigation from the U.S. Judicial Commission has now been sent to Congress, and it is disturbing, to say the least. It finds that Fuller did not only abuse his wife that one time in that hotel room in Atlanta, which we've covered in great detail, had the exclusive uh, audio tape of the 911 call over the past year. We've, we've played it many times. But Judge Fuller, the, uh, the commission finds, was also a serial abuser and a perjurer. And also the claims that his attorneys made to the Brad blog earlier this year now seem to be completely untrue. We will have details on all of that and much more on the broadcast as we move forward today. But first, as we went to air yesterday, word had just broken that Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, the once uh, GOP presidential frontrunner in Iowa, a longtime favorite of the billionaire Koch brothers, as well as sort of a consensus establishment uh, candidate for the 2016 nomination, at least until his poll numbers fell off a cliff over the past several months. We learned as we went to air that he was dropping out of the GOP race. Here's a bit from his press conference later in the evening explaining why he was dropping out. Ronald Reagan was good for America because he was an optimist. Sadly, the debate taking place in the Republican Party today is not focused on that optimistic view of America. 
Instead, it has drifted into personal attacks. I was sitting in church yesterday. The pastor's words reminded me that the Bible is full of stories about people who were called to be leaders in unusual ways. Today, I believe that I'm being called to lead by helping to clear the field in this race so that a positive, conservative message can rise to the top of the field. With this in mind, I will suspend my campaign immediately. I encourage other Republican presidential candidates to consider doing the same so that the voters can focus on a limited number of candidates who can offer a positive, conservative alternative to the current frontrunner. That was uh, controversial Governor Scott Walker at his press conference yesterday announcing he is dropping out of the 2016 Republican race for president. Uh, that was not the only big news, by the way, out of Wisconsin yesterday, uh, or at least <clears throat> in the past 24 hours, as a Wisconsin Supreme Court justice died in court yesterday. Here to talk about all of that and more, I suspect, is journalist John Nichols. He's the Washington correspondent. For the Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times, and associate editor of The Capital Times, the daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. He's also the author of three books, including a best-selling biography of Vice President Dick Cheney and co-author of five books on American democracy, media, and journalism. Always good to have him here. John Nichols, my friend, welcome back to the broadcast. It's great to be with you, Brad. Always good to have you here, sir. All right, so, man... What happened to Scott Walker? Why so sudden? What you, your favorite uh, Wisconsin favorite son, John Nichols? I, I'm sure you're broken up about all of it. What what why what happened? Was it the lack of support of, of donors? Was it Donald Trump? What exactly happened? Well, it was a lot of things, and uh, it did happen fast, which is what makes it interesting. We've become very familiar in politics with the death by slow cuts mm -hmm. approach to presidential campaigning, you know, you're kind of up, and then you slowly go down, and eventually you got to quit after, you know, Iowa or something like that. Mm -hmm. In the case of Scott Walker, when he announced for president of the United States 10 weeks ago, so you understand, this is a 10-week-long campaign, uh, <laughs> yep. he was at the top of his game. He was leading in polls in Iowa, generally very high in polls in New Hampshire, sometimes at the top. He was ahead in some national polls and had been way up at some points. In fact, even into August, he was so high up that when they arrayed people on that, that first debate stage, he was right next to Donald Trump, right, which is a, a you know key spot. Yeah, it was him, him and uh, Jeb Bush and Scott Walker were considered the, the, the top three at that point, they, just and, two weeks ago. And there was an ago. argument? Well, a little more than that. Your time's passing faster than you think. My uh, maybe it is. You're right. About a month or so ago. But, okay. but the bottom line is, the bottom line is that what happened to Scott Walker had everything to do with message. Mm -hmm. And we never talk about that in politics. You know, we never, ever cover issues. We always are obsessed with process, mm -hmm. with money, and those things are really important and need to be covered. But in this case, it was a fascinating thing. Scott Walker had tons of money in the bank. His his PAC still has, you know, millions, perhaps, you know, when you get final accounting, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. So he's not broke. His right. campaign isn't broke. What happened with Scott Walker was 
he got that debate spot based on a fantasy. And the fantasy was that Americans hate trade unions so much. They hate living wages. They hate good benefits. They hate weekends off. They hate vacations so much that they were ready to elect a guy whose only argument for himself was that he'd gotten a fight in a fight with unions. And when Walker actually got the, the spotlight and he started talking about his record, what he wanted to do, everybody got bored in about five minutes. Because <laughs> all he did was tell war stories. Yeah, I fought with some unions in Wisconsin. And the Koch brothers and other people sent in tens of millions of dollars. He didn't say that exactly. But, you know, they sent in tens of millions of dollars. And I narrowly beat back uh, a mass uprising against my horrible policies. And he kept going back to that, and people, at a certain point, and I'm talking conservative Republicans, mm-hmm. said, what else do you have for us? What do you have to offer? What, what do you got? Because they weren't that interested. Polling shows, Brad, that trade unions are more popular now than at any time in seven, eight years. They're more popular now than they were before Scott Walker got elected governor of Wisconsin. They've gone from a approval rating, you know, that was in the in the 40s, low mm-hmm. 40s in some cases, up to approval 58%. More than 40% of Republicans now say they approve of unions. In fact, a fifth of Republicans say they think unions should be stronger. So the notion that there's some scorching anti-union sentiment out there just isn't true. Well, it isn't. And, it isn't true. And I also thought, and I hate to uh, move it back to process, but obviously that's oh, important sure. here as well. I always thought that, uh, well, was he overstated uh, f- from the jump? Was his support for him overstated? His his uh, his ability, his you know, ability to be an impressive candidate. I, I never thought he was particularly impressive as a candidate in Wisconsin either. But no, you know, he won he three uh, elections in the past four years. If you believe the computer reported results, is he somehow better on? Wisconsin issues than on the national stage uh, in a way that, you know, no, we just don't understand no. out here in the rest of the country? No, you, yeah, you don't get our genius. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe there's yeah. something going no, on no. there that he's speaking to that he just can't speak to nationally. Completely not the case. No, that's not it. Um, he took the wrong lesson from Wisconsin, and he tried to take it national, and it went nowhere. But, His wrong lesson from Wisconsin was that because he had a moment in which he prevailed, that it must have been all about him and all about the, the very narrow set of issues he was working on. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. He rode in on the Republican wave of 2010. Right. The Republican wave of 2010 put Republicans in in all sorts of places. He then did a very extreme set of gestures but he didn't come up with them himself. They were all things out of the Alec playbook and out of the, you know, sort of D.C. think tank, right-to-work law type playbooks. And so he attacked unions. He attacked trial lawyers. And you'll appreciate this. He attacked the basic infrastructure of democracy. They did a brutal gerrymandering of the state legislature mm-hmm. that, that essentially made it uncompetitive. They... Uh, went on a full-court assault on the Government uh, Accountability Board, which is our essentially the state's elections board. Mm-hmm. They um, did all sorts of structural assaults on state 
statewide elected officials, constitutional officials. They literally changed the way the Supreme Court's chief justice was chosen, all to to be to their advantage. So they they went at structure like crazy. And then when they did get in trouble, when they faced a real pushback in the form of a recall election, they then invited, this is Scott Walker, invited every billionaire in America to write the biggest checks imaginable and to use every vehicle possible to reelect him. And and that worked. So well, I'm not, you know, it, it, what I'm saying is... It, it may have worked, but all of those things that Scott Walker did, John, uh, also, uh, you know, led people to to rise up against him. And, you know, the fact yeah. that I guess the question is, are, you know, with all of those things happening? Yes, he had all of that money and he's got a lot of that money still in in the uh, in the national campaign. But were Wisconsin or I should say are Wisconsin Democrats just not able to come up with uh, with decent candidates because with all of that you would think he'd be easily defeated he's ticked off so many people or you know or is it just the voting machines I don't know I mean well, what's the hold up here you, well you, you're asking good questions let me offer you a, a simple notion I believe the structures of our politics, do matter, although I was just talking about message and saying that it was message that was so destructive to Walker at mm-hmm. the national level because people were actually listening to him and, he and he's an empty suit. But I believe that structures do matter. And so the thing to understand is Scott Walker has never, ever, in any of his major elections for county executive in Milwaukee County and for governor of Wisconsin, faced an electorate in a high-turnout presidential election year. Mm-hmm. He has always faced the electorate in off years, and he has benefited in two of his statewide elections from a clear national Republican wave. And in the recall, yes, the Democrats did not pick their strongest candidate. There's little doubt of that. They literally ran the guy that he had beaten two year, a year and a half earlier right. against them again. That was probably not the smartest move. But more than that, more than that, if you understand this, Brad, after the the initial primaries, the Democratic and Republican primaries in the recall, it's a different structure there. They actually, candidate has to, you basically just hold a new election. Mm-hmm. So they had the Democratic and Republican primaries. Walker easily got through his. His opponent, Tom Barrett, relatively easily got through his, but had to spend money. Walker literally had access to tens of millions of dollars. His opponent had almost nothing. Right. And so for weeks, Scott Walker was literally able to frame the discussion, literally buy this. And that's, I don't just believe putting ads up wins elections, but when you can literally frame the discussion. And then he did something quite incredible. He lied. He lied in, the, in a flat-out, unimaginable way. There was clear evidence. Uh, that his economic plans had failed terribly, that they were a mess. Wisconsin was trailing other states. Job creation was way off. All of his promises in this regard were going down the drain. He came up with a set of you know absurd figures that were never, they were not in any way comparable. And he released them. And this is where this is the real uh, a real fail. Wisconsin media, by and large, gave him a pass when he made absolutely absurd claims. Mm. And so he made absurd claims, backed them up with tens of millions of dollars of television, and came through with, you know, 52, 53% of the vote, 
Now, the fact of the matter is that if you, no matter what you think about structural problems, processes, and all that, mm-hmm. those were not huge wins. No. And he never expanded his base. He never, ever got above, you know, much above what he was initially elected with. Well, you this talk- is a divide-and-conquer strategy that worked in a moment, but the notion that that's transferable to national politics is absolutely absurd. Well, uh, uh, I don't know if it's absurd, but it was in this case. I mean, it certainly didn't uh, <laughs> it work. You, you mentioned uh, all of the money that he had and the support. I mean, he was... Speaking of favorite sons, he was the Koch brothers' favorite son. Uh, you know, and after the Citizens United decision, of course, the assumption has been that candidates can stay in these national races much longer than they used to be able to, presuming that they have, you know, one or more billionaires. See Newt Gingrich with Sheldon Adelson in, in, and uh, Santorum with Foster Freeze back in 2012. So where are the Koch brothers? I thought that the, uh, Walker had been their man for years. Why didn't they save him? Why didn't they prop him up here? It seems like they've thrown him under the bus. My friend? Yeah? It's a little bit of bad news for you. What's that? When you play with billionaires, yeah. it's always, they always set the rules of the game. And Scott Walker had their, their love and affection when he was doing their bidding in the state of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. in, in the narrow zone of the state of Wisconsin. Right. But this year, the Koch brothers are playing for everything. They want to have the governorships of lots of states. They want the Senate. They want the House. But above all, they want the presidency. They want the... They want the, the, the big, big prize, group. yeah. And so they're not going to force their nominee on the Republican Party. They so, want they actually like the competition. They want somebody to come out who's strong and who can win. And I'm not I'm no big fan of the Koch brothers. But I will say that they are practical businessmen. They see politics as business, as a transactional enterprise. And so they have been more than happy in this campaign to watch these candidates bang around, try to get a position, mm-hmm. see what they can do. Now, if we talk more about this a little ways down the line, I say, if it looks like somebody might get nominated who couldn't win, in their view, in November of 2016, they might intervene in the, pri- intervene in the primaries. Mm-hmm. But there was no reason for them to intervene on behalf of Scott Walker as he showed that he wasn't ready for prime time. You know, you're, you because you're, they don't want to put a non prime time candidate up. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. They also showed, uh, as you know, a huge amount of support in the past for Chris Christie. Uh, we uh, here on uh, at bradblog.com, we had the uh, the audio tapes of David Koch introducing, secretly introducing Chris Christie, calling him his kind of man and everything else. Well, they don't seem to be writing to Chris Christie's rescue either in this case. So maybe they are sitting back and seeing who can win, who can compete. And then they'll come in with the big guns. Uh, John Nichols, I, I want to get uh, to uh, Justice Crooks here momentarily, but uh, I want to hit two quick questions on Scott Walker before we move on to that. Uh, first, where is the endless state criminal investigation uh, against Walker and or his cronies at this point? And I believe that's a short question, which may have a long answer, but do your best to keep it tight because I, it, I, it, I know it's a hard one to, to, to summarize here. 
I'm not going to even try. Here's what I will tell people to do. Honestly, right. I, I give you the best answer I can. Right. Uh, Scott Walker has, since before he was elected, been the subject of multiple inquiries into questions relating to the abuses of the offices he has held. Uh, the abuses have generally been seen as the use of those offices uh, for political purposes, literally mm-hmm. diverting taxpayer dollars to achieve political ends, mm-hmm. and at the same time, uh, coordinating to develop illegal connections and infrastructure to use all the power of money and politics to advantage him. These investigations have uh, led to the indictments of multiple aides and allies and donors to the governor, the convictions, convictions yeah. of close aides and donors, and people going to jail. At the same time, the investigation has never fully linked it to Scott Walker, and the investigations have been under hardcore assault by the right-wing media echo chamber, and they have succeeded in essentially shutting those investigations down, but not killing them altogether. There is still ongoing legal wrangling right. over these inquiries. And, I, and, I'll, and rather than go to immense detail, I'll say that uh, the Center for Media and Democracy, CMD, mm-hmm. of which I think is at PR Watch, yep. has you know, encyclopedic, yeah. yes, encyclopedic coverage of this. People can go there and check it out. What people should understand, the only thing that's relevant to the presidential race on this is that this is very internecine and very complex, a lot of push and pull in Wisconsin. Had this ever actually been explored in a serious way by national media, right. say if he became a Republican presidential nominee, um, it's pretty devastating. Oh, it, it, it is completely. It really bad. There is so much out there that is already on the record on some of the cases that are done, like the first John Doe case, that if you look at him and you see what Scott Walker's involvement was in that, I think it, he would have been destroyed as a national candidate by these things had the media done their job, but will not know. But as the investigations still continue, as they're still finding well, out, they sort of struggle. They struggle to continue because there is there's an immense pressure to shut them down. The courts have, in fact, intervened to you know at the Supreme Court level to try and shut it down. Um, and, and there's there's legal wrangling going back and forth. And, and John, what that, I do think is important is what's on the record already. Uh-huh. Um, I think just as Marco Rubio's personal financial details from. Florida, you know, when that goes national, I mean, I keep hearing people say certain people, like, you know, Walker at one point, Rubio still, some people, they're going to go national. I say no, because when you actually see what some of these folks were involved with, it looks as bad as anything they're talking about with Donald Trump or Carly Fiorina. Well, the reason that I ask about, uh, you know, Walker and where that case is and the prosecution trying to simply continue their investigation and then being ultimately uh, blocked to some extent by the uh, by the state, uh, Wisconsin State Supreme Court is, uh, well, that that has to do with uh, something that happened yesterday. A very sad story. Uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice N. Patrick Brooks, I'm sorry, Crooks. Crooks. Uh, yeah, N. Patrick Crooks uh, died on Monday at the court in Madison. He was 77 years old. He had announced. Uh, just a week or so ago, I, I think that he would not seek re-election at the end of his term next year. 
Um, he was considered a, I guess, a swing vote. I, I, I think he was initially appointed by a Democrat years ago. He was uh, been on the on the court, uh, or at least on the Wisconsin courts for almost forty years. Uh, I think twenty years as a member of the uh, Supreme Court. So. You already had a very, very uh, closely balanced Supreme Court that continuously sort of uh, whenever any of these cases having to do with Scott Walker made their way up to the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court, the Supreme Court essentially sided with Scott Walker. Now, does the death of Justice Crooks here, uh, who was sort of a swing vote, does that change the equation for or against uh, uh, Walker and his cronies in any way? Or or is it uh, too difficult to know? No, it's not difficult to know at all. Uh, first off, uh, Justice Crooks was a lovely man, a really decent person. Uh, I would go so far as to say that while I did not always agree with every ruling he put down, mm-hmm. uh, I knew him for decades, and um, he, to my mind, he was a judge. And that's almost unheard of these days, isn't it? <laughs> Somebody who's on a court who actually, you can't call him a politician. There was never any any political side to this guy. He was decent to people, no matter what your partisanship, no matter what your ideology, he was well-regarded. When a lot of bitter wrangling sprung up around the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, and and, and much of it continues, Mm -hmm. uh, notions of a left block, a right block, you know, people aligned with Walker, aligned against Walker, things of that nature. Crooks was always in the middle. He always played it very, very fairly, but always decently. And uh, there is simply no question whatsoever. His passing, uh, and, and just the fact that his, his seat is vacant, the fact that he will not be there, makes the court in, its, in this smaller arrangement, mm-hmm. the loss of this person, more pro-Walker. There well, are now only two justices on the court, uh, Shirley Abramson and Ann Walsh Bradley, who could be expected uh, to talk about the rule of law, talk about an independent judiciary, talk about opposing uh, abuses by this governor. Well, so uh, you've Crooks, skipped the balance. Crooks may not have been a, a politician, but uh, in, in Wisconsin, at least, Wisconsin Supreme Court justices have to uh, run, which I think is crazy, by the way, that they have to run for election. Um, and we've been talking of late on on this program uh, about how Republicans have been gaming court systems in a number of states around the country. We went into great detail about what uh, Sam Brownback is doing out there in Kansas, threatening to defund the judiciary entirely. Last year, Wisconsin passed an initiative, uh, a ballot initiative, I believe, to change the way that the tr- chief justice of the Supreme Court is chosen uh, it had been uh, someone who, who aligned more with uh, Democrats, had been the uh, chief justice for a long time. They changed that now so that the justices themselves get to decide who will be the chief justice. Well, and yeah, if I could just intervene, sure. I would say, first off, just a slight you know, correction. Shirley Abramson, the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, yeah. had until this recent kind of the, the era of Walkerism uh, been kind of universally respected. She might have been seen by some folks as a more liberal judge. I accept that, and I'm not going to challenge that. But she was somebody who works very, very well with Republicans and Democrats. When she ran for re-election uh, some years back, she was endorsed by Republicans and Democrats. 
All right. Well, I should say uh, that she did not identify solely with the right, with the right wing as Walker. some yeah. of these guys do. And, right. And, but she's a progress. She's a much more progressive jurist than a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And that's not to paint her, you know, to try and suggest, to try to give people false impression. But what I would say is she's rigorously nonpartisan mm-hmm. and a rule of law stickler. And if if you know if that meant that she had to go against an ideology or a partisanship that she might personally have have been closer to i mean she's a really remarkable judge and 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 she had been chief justice for a very long time um and very very respected she sort of is the face of the court unfortunately as scott walker began to put his imprint on every branch of government executive judicial and legislative mm-hmm. and really to force down a kind of one-size-fits-all governance Shirley Abramson was the most powerful person in a position to say no. Even if there wasn't a majority on the court, she had the ability to schedule cases. She had the ability to uh, focus cases. Mm-hmm. You know, she had, a, and and this drove the Republicans nuts because they couldn't beat her. She was overwhelmingly reelected. She's very very popular, and so they had a problem. So what they did was they got rid of. The historic Wisconsin model, mm-hmm. which is the senior judge on the court, right. the person who's been elected the most times, literally the voters have approved the most times for the court, gets to be the chief justice, right? It's a, it's a very logical model, right. right? It takes partisanship and ideology out of it because it doesn't matter about the swing of one year or another, the senior judge on the court, uh, and then when that person leaves, then the next senior judge takes over. Well, what they did was they changed the law so that now that they currently have a majority on the court, that the court itself would elect its chief justice. And they then they put huge amounts of spending, you know, from business mm-hmm. interests, special interests, into this referendum vote, this, this constitutional amendment vote. Yep. They flipped the court. They, flew, they, they got their victory, a narrow, very narrow victory, actually. And um, then immediately kicked Shirley Abramson out. And so they've been gaining this court like crazy. Yeah. There's simply no question. They are obsessed with the court. They are obsessed, literally, if you can imagine this, imagine a political class, you know, the, the partisan political class, yeah. obsessed with literally arranging the chairs on the court. Oh, I know. I mean, it's such an arcane thing. We spent, as you know, John Nichols, uh, many months uh, covering uh, the Supreme Court race uh, a year or two ago between uh, uh, Joanne Kloppenberg and David Prosser. Not exactly a national story, but it became a national story. Really important. Really important. Well, it became a national story because it was going to be somewhat determinative uh, of, you know, Scott Walker's attempts to uh, strip the unions and who would have the, uh, you know, who would essentially have control of that court. And of course, uh, when one of the, uh, the county clerks up there uh, suddenly found some 14,000 votes that she uh, hadn't noticed uh, previously up in Waukesha, very conservative Waukesha County, that, of course, made a lot of people uh, very concerned about those numbers. But, uh, yeah, this is, you know, people, it, it seems like it's not a national story, but it is, particularly in Wisconsin, where so many of the things that the, the governor and the uh, legislature are doing seem to make their way to the to the state Supreme Court. I got to get well, out. I'll go, step, yeah. I, I go one final step on Yeah. I joined Kloppenberg one. 
very likely the court would have thrown out the most extreme of Scott Walker's initiatives. Yeah. So everything he's talked about as a presidential candidate yep. uh, would have been ruled illegal. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this stuff matters. Will there be, and, and though I, I don't think it would change the balance of the court, but will there be a special election uh, to fill yeah. the seat of it, Justice Crooks? It does not have to be a special election because Crooks had already announced he was stepping down. Mm-hmm. So there's a regular election scheduled for next spring in April of uh, next year. And Joanne Kloppenberg, who you mentioned, is running again, uh, as well as a very, very conservative judge who was, was moved up the, the ladder by Scott Walker. So it's going to be, you know, a battle royale. Uh, there's another candidate in the race as well, but I, my sense is that we're going to end up with, you know, really one of the most intense judicial fights in America. And, and while you are correct to say that it may not exactly tip the balance of the court, remember... And a seven-member court, you know, any any shift or any turn can have huge consequence. So this is yep. a big deal election. I think you're going to see huge spending. I think you're going to see all the nastiness uh, of of politics being coming into play. Does it People take? Should be very conscious. Does it take place? Uh, and yeah, just a reminder: elections matter. People, uh, a d- lot. D- d- does the election take place? Uh, it's not going to take place next November. It's not going to take place no, during the April. president. It's it's in April. So is it standing alone? Or is it during a state primary? No, I got news for you. I got news for you, brother. Yeah, it's parallel to the Wisconsin presidential primary. Oh, great. Okay. Well, not you know actually depending on how Bernie Sanders does, you could have a huge turnout of progressives. Well, uh, you could you if could, if yeah. there's still a big fight at that point in April in Wisconsin. Or on the Republican side, yep. if it happens that Ben Carson and Donald Trump are still banging around, yep. you could have it there. So it does get run through all of that. But the the most important thing, uh, in my opinion, the most important thing to understand is aside from the election stuff, yep. in the interim, because there's about a year left in this term, uh, in the interim, Scott Walker could appoint someone. Oh, that could so, happen. Uh, that would be fun, brother. Uh, let me, uh, I got to get out. Uh, the nation's Washington correspondent and Wisconsin's favorite son, John Nichols. Always great to talk to you, my friend. We'll do it again soon, I'm sure. I look forward to it, Brad. Take care. Thank you. Okay, a very busy news day today. Did you hear the Pope is in town? Uh, lots to cover straight ahead on your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today.
promised, I think it was, uh, well, just over a year ago now, uh, that I would be watching every step that uh, Mark E. Fuller, U.S. District Judge from the Middle District of Alabama, was taking after he was arrested in, uh, in early August following his wife calling 911, claiming that she was being beaten by the federal judge. I have been watching him ever since. We have been uh, covering that story quite a bit on this show. We have a new development in that story. Get to that momentarily. While we were on break, however, two things happened. One, uh, I was chatting with uh, John Nichols uh, during the break, and he said that, yes, he believes uh, uh, Scott Walker will, in fact, appoint someone to fill that uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court seat that is now vacant following the uh, death on Tuesday of Justice Crooks. So he thinks Scott Walker is going to appoint someone to that seat, which will seriously change the balance of the court, at least for the short term, until an election can be held next year. And uh, John pointed out that the election, when it is, is held next year in April, will be during the Wisconsin primary. So depending on how both the Republican and Democratic races are going at that time, Bernie Sanders could still be in it and tearing up the place and have a huge turnout in a state like Wisconsin, which could be uh, good news for Democrats. Uh, Or you could have the contentious Republican race, which could end up being good news for Scott Walker uh, as far as turnout goes. So that is one thing we will be keeping our eye on. The second thing I'll just tease here if you haven't heard this news, because this just happened while we were on air. Hillary Clinton has finally, finally come out with her position on the Keystone XL pipeline. So we will tell you what that position is. I believe we have uh, some audio of her of her announcement. We'll uh, we'll get that shortly and we will play that for you here before this program is done. How's that for a tease if you haven't heard? All right. Uh, In the meantime. Back to uh, Judge Mark Fuller. Back in 2002, George W. Bush appointed Mark Fuller to be the U.S. District Court judge in the Middle District of Alabama. And Fuller had been very close uh, to Karl Rove, George W. Bush's political advisor at the time, and he was sort of part of this uh, cabal to get, uh, you know, GOP-friendly judges onto the federal bench. Mark Fuller was one of them. Mark Fuller had been had been the head of the Alabama GOP at one point. He went on to be the state uh, prosecutor. And after Don Siegelman, Governor Don Siegelman, Democratic governor from Alabama, very popular Southern Dem- Democrat, which scared the hell out of folks like Karl Rove, who knew that Siegelman was likely to run for president. The last thing they needed after Bill Clinton was a popular Southern governor running for president. Don Siegelman needed to be destroyed, as Karl Rove saw it. And there was a lot that was done uh, to get at Don Siegelman, including on the night of his reelection, when he had been announced the winner, he went to bed, and then in the middle of the night he was woke up and said and told, oh, hey, there was a computer glitch in one of the counties, and it turns out you lost, governor. And when, of course, uh, Don Siegelman wanted to count those ballots and figure out what the hell had happened, he was stopped from being able to count the ballots. That was among the things they did. Then they tried to take him to, to court to prosecute him, and the prosecution was thrown out because it was so ridiculous. Then they tried again, 
in a, a different jurisdiction with a friendlier judge. And this prosecution was uh, was carried out by uh, the wife of uh, Governor Siegelman's opponent's ch- uh, campaign head. So the campaign head of Siegelman's opponent for governor, his wife, was one of the uh, U.S. attorneys working for the federal government in Alabama and gunning for Don Siegelman. So when they were able to bring this uh, case finally that they had been trying to bring in court against Don Siegelman, they found their friendlier judge in Mark Fuller. Mark Fuller, who had a grudge already against Don Siegelman, not just because Fuller was the head of the, the state GOP, but also because once Don Siegelman became governor, he did an investigation of the prosecutor's office and found all kinds of problems under Mark Fuller's management. Fuller was never tried criminally for that, but he was embarrassed, and apparently he never forgot it. He should have recused himself from the case when Don Siegelman was then brought before his court, but he did not. And Don Siegelman was eventually sent to jail, sent to prison, uh, was originally sentenced for seven and a half years. That was brought down to six and a half years, but, but he was sent to prison for something that had never been a crime before, according to 113 bipartisan state attorneys general. They said it was they said it was bribery, but in fact, government uh, uh, Governor Don Siegelman never received any enrichment whatsoever. They said it was a quid pro quo in exchange for putting some uh, a rich businessman onto a state hospital board, a hospital board on which that businessman had already sat under three previous governors, including two Republican governors. He didn't even want to be on that thing. So the whole thing was a scam. The whole thing was a setup. And frankly, Don Siegelman sits in prison right now, still to this day. And we've had him on this show to talk about this entire mess. We've had his his son and his daughter on. Frankly, it's an outrage. It's a political prosecution. And uh, President Obama should have pardoned Don Siegelman long ago. But Don Siegelman sits in jail as Mark Fuller... (laughs) As Mark Fuller was arrested last August, a year ago, August, actually, after his wife called 911 saying that she was being beaten, that he, the judge, was beating on her. And I will spare you the 911 call because we've played it over and over and over again on this program. We obtained it. We played the entire 911 call exclusively. You can actually hear her, Kelly Fuller, being uh, slapped, smacked, or at least something that sounds like her being smacked and slapped on this 911 call. But I won't play it for you uh, because the good news is a couple of months ago, Judge Fuller finally, finally resigned from his position as U.S. District Court judge. He said he was never going to resign. He said he was innocent. He didn't do it. Well, in the meantime, The 11th Circuit Court put together a special committee to the 11th Circuit Court Judicial Council to look into the matter, to investigate the matter. And they began investigating. They began interviewing. They began taking testimony under oath in the course of this uh, investigation, which is now stretched out to a year. Well, as of May, it looked like Mark Fuller was in trouble and he was going to be removed by hook or by crook from his uh, $200,000 a year lifetime appointment from George W. Bush and Karl Rove. Now, the only way to get rid of him is either he quits, he resigns, or he is impeached by an act of Congress. So he couldn't just you couldn't just fire him. 
he had to actually go through an impeachment in Congress. And it took a year. I, I talked originally to the uh, uh, to, to folks at the U.S. House Judiciary Committee where impeachment proceedings would begin. And they told me that, well, customarily in cases like this, where there's a question about the judge, they wait for uh, they wait, wait for a recommendation from the U.S. Judicial Conference. And uh, that's what they did in this case. And as of May of this year, it looked pretty bad for Judge Fuller. Word was leaking out that this conference, judicial conference, their final report might actually recommend impeachment. And so Mark Fuller finally ended up resigning from from his post. He didn't actually leave until August 1. So he continued to collect tens of thousands of dollars from the taxpayer. But, you know. He's a Republican, and so they, they apparently they, they love taking taxpayer money while pretending they don't. Well, that report has now been given. The Judicial Conference's report has now been given to the, uh, to the U.S. Congress, sent to Speaker Boehner. A letter accompanied the report uh, from uh, Secretary James C. Duff, Secretary of the Judicial Conference, And uh, this was sent to the Speaker of the House, and it says, in part, uh, in a case with less egregious and protracted conduct, the Judicial Conference may decide that resignation obviates the need for this certification. However, given the severity of the misconduct outlined, together with a finding of perjury, perjury, the Judicial Conference believes that certification of this matter to the House of Representatives for whatever action the House of Representatives considers to be necessary is appropriate. They are recommending impeachment, even though he has already resigned. What he did was so egregious, including perjury, that they, they believe he should be impeached. They go on to write, The Judicial Conference also recognizes that given Judge Fuller's resignation, Congress may decline to pursue impeachment in the event that the House of Representatives determines in its sound discretion that impeachment is not warranted, this certification may also serve as a public censure of Judge Fuller's reprehensible conduct, which has no doubt brought disrepute to the judiciary and cannot constitute the good behavior required of a federal judge. In fact, what he did was far worse than even we knew. We've been reporting this at bradblog.com for a long time. The I got comment from uh, Fuller's uh, attorney who denied everything, who, who claimed his uh, client was completely innocent. I'll get to that in a moment. But here is the uh, the determination from the judici- uh, judicial conference. They say that the uh, sent to the U.S. House, the determination is based on substantial evidence provided in the report of the special committee to the judicial council of the 11th Circuit and adopted by the Circuit Judicial Council, that A, Judge Fuller physically abused Kelly Fuller, that's his second wife, at least eight times, both before and after they married, which included and culminated in the assault that took place on August 9, 2014, in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. B, Judge Fuller made repeated statements under oath before the special committee that was investigating that he never at any time hit, kicked, or punched Kelly Fuller. Those claims, they say, were false and material under 18 U.S.C., blah, blah, blah. That would be perjury, in other words. 
Judge Fuller made false statements. This is interesting and and, uh, deserves more uh, scrutiny. We don't know what this actually refers to, but they say, uh, C, Judge Fuller made false statements to the chief judge of the 11th Circuit in late September 2010 in a way that caused a massive disruption in the district court's operation and loss of public confidence in the court as an instrument of justice. These false statements, in combination with the actions outlined in A and B above, contributed to the overall determination that Judge Fuller's conduct may constitute grounds for impeachment. The conduct, D, the conduct described in A through C has individually and collectively brought disrepute to the federal judiciary. So, wow. Yes, uh, Judge Fuller not only uh, beat the hell out of his wife in that Atlanta hotel room, he also did this at least eight times, both before and after they were married. And Kelly Fuller, his uh, his second wife, uh, the one who was heard on those nine one one tapes, and and you can we have I did a full article on this uh, uh, this week at bradblog.com. If you want to hear that disturbing audio, you can. I've got it there uh, in, in a YouTube video. Um, But Kelly Fuller was uh, his second wife, as I said. Uh, Apparently, he was she was his court bailiff previously during his first marriage. She was he was cheating on his first wife, Lisa Fuller, with uh, his court bailiff, Kelly Gregg, who eventually married. His first wife in their divorce proceedings, his first wife also made similar claims. That he had uh, hit, beat, kicked, abused uh, both her and uh, the children, that he had a drinking problem, that he drove under the influence of alcohol with the kids in the car. And, of course, he denied all of this. His attorney denied all of this. His attorney, Birmingham attorney by the name of Barry Ragsdale, uh, was telling everyone for the past year that uh, Judge Fuller, quote, never hit, punched, slapped or kicked his wife, Kelly, on the night he was hauled away. By uh, uh, from the Ritz-Carlton by the uh, police after that call. Judge Fuller uh, made similar, quote, repeated statements under oath before the special committee. But, of course, that committee found those claims to be false. Earlier this year, the attorney Ragsdale told me at Bradblog.com that my coverage was, quote, sensationalized and misleading. He said, quote, your blog entries on this case suffer from the very glaring misapprehension that Kelly Fuller was telling the truth when she claimed that Judge Fuller was beating on me to the 911 dispatcher. But in fact, the only thing that is clear from the 911 call is that Kelly Fuller was drunk when she made the call. He went on to say that she was drunk and hysterical and that she was uh, most likely faking those smacking sounds that you can hear on that 911 call. He suggested that, in truth, it was uh, Kelly Fuller who assault and attacked the judge instead of the other way around. He said that Fuller uh, never hit, kicked, beat or slapped or kicked anyone, including his first wife. He claimed and I didn't report this at the time because it was just hearsay, but he claimed that both uh, Kelly Fuller, the second wife and Lisa Fuller, the first wife, had both testified under oath that none of this had happened. All of this was stuff and nonsense. And I didn't report it at the time because it was hearsay. It was only his hearsay. And frankly, it sounded either like nonsense or what a lot of uh, abused women uh, do. 
you know, after uh, after things calm down, they say, oh, it never happened. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. And then they get beaten again. And apparently that is what happened. She was beaten over and over and over and over again, at least eight times, according to the judicial conference. You can read the whole story at bradblog.com and more on what uh, Barry Ragsdale had to say to me, which uh, appears to be complete and utter stuff and nonsense. I asked him for comments since uh, the news broke about the judicial conference's report. He has not gotten back to me for some reason. He used to be uh, pretty good about responding. He's not responding uh, at this time, at least. Uh, if he wants to come on and um, talk about what happened here on this program, we'd be delighted to have him. Uh, but I did not want to report that what he had to say back then when there was no uh where the information was not yet out to counter it. We still haven't seen the full report, but uh, perjury and domestic assault found uh, by Judge Mark F. Fuller. Uh, he, by the way, received no jail time. His criminal record was expunged because, as the state judge thought at the time, it was a first-time offense. I think we knew better all along. Mark Fuller roams free. Don Siegelman is still serving out his six-and-a-half-year prison sentence, federal prison sentence, down in Louisiana. All right, a quick break, and we are back with uh, Hillary Clinton and, uh, finally, her position on Keystone XL Pipeline. You're listening to The Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. A lot of folks have been tired of waiting for Hillary Clinton to make her uh, statement of whether she supports or opposes the Keystone XL pipeline, which she had previously said, well, I'll let you know once I become president if uh, Barack Obama hasn't made his decision or not. Uh, that wasn't going to fly, was it, Desi Doyen? Oh, certainly uh, not. A, a, a lot of pressure coming down on her to... Uh, you know, and it was pathetic, frankly, to say that, uh, oh, I'll let you know once I'm elected president. Well, that's a bit of a prevarication on what she actually said. She was saying it's still pending and because of her, as she put it, conflict of interest, being former secretary of state and all that. So she was basically nonsense. trying to make that. So. Nonsense. I'm just there saying was... that's what the actual explanation yeah, was. Yeah, well, nonsense. There was no reason she couldn't come out with her position one way or another. Uh, until now, she was trying to play it safe because she didn't know what uh, Obama was going to do. She didn't want to be on the wrong side of the issue, uh, you know, and, and she was trying to avoid the tough decisions. Well, she can avoid them no longer. She has finally come out with her position. She made this statement moments ago uh, at a campaign event in Iowa. So I thought this would be decided by now, and therefore I could tell you whether I agreed or I disagreed. But it hasn't been decided and I feel now I've got a responsibility to you and other voters who ask me about this and I think it is imperative that we look at the Keystone pipeline as what I believe it is a distraction from the important work we have to do to combat climate change and unfortunately from my perspective one that interferes with our ability to move forward to deal with all the other issues. Therefore, I oppose it. And I oppose it because I don't think...
I don't think it's in the best interests of what we need to do to combat climate change. So there you go. Democratic 2016 candidate Hillary Clinton opposes, finally, the Keystone XL pipeline. She does not think it's in the best interest of what we need to do to combat climate change, which also, I need to point out, was true six months ago. And a year ago, and two years when ago, she when, would not come out with when her the position. State Department also put out its glowing report saying, hey, it'll have no environmental impact. Well, she could have long ago come out with, uh, with this statement. Yes. Senator Bernie Sanders responded uh, in a statement, uh, also a 2016 Democratic candidate, saying, as a senator who has vig- vigorously opposed the Keystone Pipeline from the beginning, I am glad that Secretary Clinton finally has made a decision, and I welcome her opposition to the pipeline. Clearly, it would be absurd to encourage the extraction and transportation of some of the dirtiest fossil fuels on the planet. As Bernie Sanders, if you couldn't tell from the bad imitation, also Martin O'Malley, Democratic candidate, uh, accused her of being slow to respond. He said, Martin O'Malley did, quote, on issue after issue, marriage equality, driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants, children fleeing violence in Central America, the Syrian refugee crisis, and now the Keystone Pipeline, Secretary Clinton has followed, not forged, public opinion. He said leadership is about stating where you stand on critical issues, regardless of how they poll or focus group. That was candidate Martin O'Malley. A little bit tougher on her than uh, than was Bernie Sanders. Finally, as you can expect, the Republicans are hitting back. They want this pipeline because it is their funders in the fossil fuel industry who uh, who stand to gain from this. Not you, not me, not the environment, not the planet, but the funders of people like Republican presidential candidate Jeb Bush, who went out on Twitter today to say Hillary Clinton finally says what we already knew. She favors environmental extremists over U.S. jobs. Hashtag Keystone XL. How many uh, how many U.S. jobs will that uh, Keystone XL pipeline bring? Oh, just about a thousand in the first two years and then thirty five. Thirty five permanent jobs at best. So uh, a couple of thousand, by the way, not even a couple of thousand uh, building it. It's like supporting the building of it. The the, the restaurants, the waiters, the hotels uh, as they build this uh, uh, pipeline uh, that complete the, the building. I don't even know if it's a thousand, but thirty five permanent jobs uh but the idea to call that environmental extremism well you got to do what you got to do am i right jeb bush my thanks to our producer desi doyan to our booking goddess cynthia Cohn, to my guest today john nichols of the nation and of course to you for spending part of your day or night with us my thanks also to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us on the air so we can say whatever the hell we want including uh, responding to the nonsense from the fossil fuel industry concerning Keystone XL. If you missed any portion of our program, you can download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where I hope you will give us a good review, make it easier for others to find us. And you, sh- you can and should follow us on the Twitters and the Facebook at the Brad Blog. Is that right? Yeah, good. Drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com otherwise known as Brad Friedman. We'll see you soon. Good luck, world. Hey.